have you part of that little crew. Sound good? All right, let's pray. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We will be wrapping up Ecclesiastes next week. And if I'm honest, like I, I love the Word of God, but I'm kind of ready for this one to be over um, because I think I've probably been, maybe it's my own personal thing. I get beat up, beaten up by the Word every time, every book of the Bible I'm preaching through. But this one, I've, it's exposed, like this consistent desire for things other than God in my own heart. That I, how often, how much time am I spending chasing things that aren't of God? That's just vanity. That has nothing to do with the mission of the gospel. Has nothing to do with the mission of Christ in this community. Um, how much of my heart is pulled between those two things? And so I've not liked it a whole lot. So maybe it's exactly where we were supposed to be for me. But maybe just for me. I don't know. We're going to be talking today about getting old. I know last week was about death. And this week's about getting old and seizing the day and some carpe diem moments, right? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time we're going to have in your word. And I pray you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. That we are here for a purpose. And it's a simple purpose. It's to make much of your name. To be glorified in your presence and to enjoy you forever. And I pray, Lord, that we would see that in our life here. Um, so that we would understand it for our eternity with you. We love you. Amen. So Ecclesiastes, again, is the, it's a letter written by Solomon, King Solomon, towards the end of his life. He wrote the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, some Bibles put in there, um, as the kind of a love letter to his bride. And you see this overflowing love of this woman that's going to be his wife. And an affection that's it's really beautiful. Um, but then he messes the whole thing up. He writes the book of Proverbs. He's wise king. He's a wise man. He's asked for the wisdom of God. He's granted that. And then he destroys everything that he was given. Um, he brings hundreds of women into his home. He separates his heart from the God whom he loves. And things don't turn out very great for him. He's in a place of, I've tried it all and nothing matters. God's all that matters. And then we get to read this book. This letter, this, the book of Ecclesiastes, where he's talking about consistently nothing matters but Christ. He doesn't say Christ. Nothing matters but God. And he have, we see hints of the Messiah throughout the book. But he's essentially saying, I've lived this life over and over and over and seeking all these pleasures and all this joy, and I'm feeling empty. And all that matters is God. And so at the end, we see him kind of wrapping this up. And he starts to say, you can enjoy life only if it's in light of God that everything else you're trying might feel happy, it might bring you some pleasure, but it's never going to bring you everlasting joy unless it's to and through God. That everything you do has to be unto him. And so he begins to kind of to wind this down, and he starts giving us some kind of practical examples that we all can relate to. He starts off, we'll be in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So the first line, light is sweet. It's kind of that, you know, maybe around June when it finally stops snowing here. Like, oh, now we get plenty of sunshine, so it's not like we don't see light. But I remember living in the Midwest and in West Virginia, like there were times when we wouldn't see the sun for weeks. There would be this gray dome cloud that would just kind of linger for weeks on end. It might be rain or it could just be cold. The winters were gloomy. And then when the sun would finally pop out, uh, my wife and then my daughter joined her when she was born. Um, they would, we had this big picture window that would catch the morning sun. And they would lay on the floor like cats, like rolling around in the sun. Like, this is kind of weird, dear. Like, you're laying on the floor, but it's just, it's sun. The sun's finally out. And she, her, everything would change. She would have this better demeanor about her when the sun's finally out. That's why God blessed us. I mean, I know it's cold and we all joke about the snow and stuff, but the amount of sunshine we have here is way better um, in disposition for us as a family. Now think about that in every sunrise. Like, there was a crazy cool sunrise this morning, wasn't there? That we've had some really neat, and I think it's because now that the sun doesn't come up till later, we all see them. Like, 
Like, not all of us really want to be up at 5.15 watching them all year long, but, like, we can see them because we're up, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. So what Solomon is getting at is the light is sweet. It's pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. Like, if you wake up each and every morning, you should have an attitude of, I got another day. The sun's shining. I'm here. I've got work to do. I've got things happening. But how often do we not function that way? Ugh. Is it the alarm goes off? Oh, what do I have to do? Oh, or do you, like maybe after one cup of coffee, you see the joy of the sunrise. But like how, how often do we get up and it's just a place of dreariness? I got another day, I have to work. Or do we seize it as a place of joy? I get another day. I get another day to live. I get another day to share the truth. I get another day to enjoy my family. I enjoy my friends, enjoy my church. I get another day. So he says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Seize the day. Seize the day. Do you enjoy the day? Do you, like, you have this day. You have an opportunity today. What are you going to do with it? Because darkness is coming. Now he's not talking, it's, this is kind of a, an apocalyptic kind of set of scriptures. He has some very like, dark, almost Daniel or Revelation-esque kind of words happening here. But he's, he's trying to get us to see that you only get a few years. 80, 100 102, maybe. You only get so many years. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? He then kind of fleshes this out a little more. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Enjoy your youth. Growing up, I wanted to be a teenager. Why? I don't know. Because they were different, I guess. You're a child and a teenager. And I think there's something like a lot of cultures about age 13, you have this rite of passage into manhood kind of thing. So it kind of, it kind of hangs out there. Like you're now a man, you're now a woman. You have these things, these markers. But then the big one for us was 16. I mean, my family is a car culture family. My dad's a mechanic and a machinist, so is my brother. So cars were a big deal to us. Um, I think I shared this a few weeks ago. I've started to help my son identify vehicles while we're driving down the road because all men should be able to do that, right? If you see a truck coming down, you should be able to tell by the grill if it's a Ford, a Chevy, or a Dodge. I mean, the only ones that matter are Chevys, but you should still be able to identify the other ones. You should be able to see them. Like, what is that, son? What is that emblem? What, like, Because that growing up, that was a big deal in our family. Can you identify the vehicles? But I wanted to be 16. In Indiana, if you took driver's ed, it was 16 a month and a day, and you got your driver's license. And the culture I grew up in, everybody was at the Department of Motor Vehicles getting their license on that day. And then you took the day off school. Mine was in the summer. Like, I got my driver's license, and I immediately went to the... I was delivering parts in an auto parts store. I was using a moped. Don't judge me. It was cool. Until that day, and then I'm driving the delivery vehicle. Like, it's a big deal, right? I got a car. And then it becomes, well, 18. I'm 18 now. I just wish I was 18. Then I'm an adult. People treat me like an adult. I can smoke and buy lottery tickets and be drafted. I'm an adult now. Right? I can pay real taxes because that's awesome. Then it's 21. I can finally drink legally. Right? I'm 21. I can finally do this. And then it becomes, well, I just, I just want to graduate college. If I just get my degree, then everything will be perfect. Well, then you've got to find a job. Well, if I could just find a job, then everything will be perfect. If I could just get married, then everything's going to be great. If we could just get out of this stinky little apartment and have a house, then it would all be perfect. Well, then we have our kids, and oh, now I just need my retirement fund. If I could just get my retirement fund paid into, everything's going to be perfect. Well, if I could just pay off my student loan debt, everything will be perfect. On and on and on it goes, doesn't it? We're living for some moment in the future instead of living for the moment we're in right now. That's what he's saying. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Don't try to get old too fast. Rejoice in the youth you have now. Think of how much money is spent now to try to stay young. Our whole youth, we want to be older, and then we hit about, I don't know, depends on who you are, 30-ish, 40-ish, 50-ish, and now we just want to be young again. Creams and lotions and surgeries and all kinds of stuff just to stay young again. And we live in a culture in a Western that doesn't value age anymore. Like, it's not just about being healthy so that you can live a healthy life into your 70s and 80s. It's about, how do I look? There's a quote from Dolly Parton. 
And I'm quoting her, so I don't want this to be, I don't want you to like think I'm picking on her. This is from her autobiography. Dolly Parton once said, it cost a fortune to look this cheap. She was lamenting all that she had done to be a woman in the music industry, in the, in the acting world. She was lamenting all that she had done to herself. And she wasn't comfortable in her own skin. If you look at movies, um, this comes out of a commentary. Denzel Washington, when he's pushing 60, he usually has actresses next to him who are 35. Liam Neeson, in the latest movie he was in, his leading lady next to him was 25 years younger than him. Like, what are we doing when we start pitting this? Why don't you just have a 60-year-old woman next to 60-year-old Denzel? Doesn't that seem logical and reasonable? Like, why, why does this stuff happen? We are in a culture that values youth more than it values age and wisdom. And Solomon's trying to say, listen, young man, young woman, enjoy where you're at right now. Embrace the moment where you're at right now. Embrace all that it is right now because there's going to come a day where you're not going to be as youthful anymore. So embrace it now. But he's also saying don't reject your wisdom. Don't reject age. Isn't the Bible talk consistently about wisdom of people who are older? Older in faith. It does not diminish, it doesn't really talk about age, it does a little, but as people who are older in faith in Titus 2, younger women should look up to older women. Younger men should look up to older men, men and learn from them. We should learn from each other. But instead, it's, well, we've got to get the young guy. That was the headline in the last, I think, I don't know what country it was. I believe it was Honduras. Millennial president could change the world's deadliest country. So there's this hope that a young person could just fix it all. Is that the hope? Or then you see the opposite. Well, if someone, we just get someone a little older, someone with some wisdom will fix this whole thing. And Solomon's saying, just, enjoy, just rejoice and enjoy right where you're at. Walk in the ways of your heart. And then there's a warning. But don't do it for yourself. You do it unto the Lord. You will be brought to judgment. That's scary to me. That I'm living my life, I'm enjoying my life, but I'll be judged. So this kind of smashes the idea of, well, I'm just going to live, do whatever I want. It'll be okay. I'm young. You only live once. I'll ask for forgiveness later. I'll live my life now. I'll live a certain way now. I'll do the things I'm not supposed to do. I'll do things outside the bounds of Scripture. I'll do things that aren't in God's design. But it'll be okay. He'll forgive me. I'll settle down when I'm older. And Solomon's warning us. He's saying, embrace your youth. Embrace the life you have right now. But know that the things you're doing, you will be judged for. So he's not giving us the free reign to live however we want. He's not giving us free reign to just do whatever we want. He's saying there's a way that brings much fame to God, and that's how we should live. Everything should run through the, the lens of Scripture. We shouldn't just live how we want to live, right? I was thinking as I was reading through this and studying this week, Eli and Savannah don't really stress over life a whole lot. Maybe if I don't give Eli enough chocolate, or, well, it's more like Taco Bell for him. Savannah's chocolate. Like, they don't stress over it. They don't wake up in the morning going, oh, what am I going to do? i got to go to the grocery store. i got to get some food. we got to make sure dinner's cooked. Um, I have, my clothes aren't washed. I need to get those in the laundry. Like, they don't wake up to that. They wake up, eat breakfast. It's time to go to school. They might have some stress over school, because school can be tough. But they don't have the other stress that we all live with as, as adults. They don't have that. They, they wake up in the morning, it seems like, to embrace the day. They're ready to whatever's coming. There might be some tension at school, there might not, but they seem to have a joy. Okay, they come home. Hey, Dad, what are we going to do tonight? I don't know. I'm tired. I just want to sit on the couch. You want to go play basketball with me? No. But then I go. Right? I'm going to embrace the day. I don't want to lose these moments. I've only got about 18 years with both these kids because hopefully they'll move out when they're 18. Like, I've only got so much time with them. I've only got so much time with them, and then they've got to be set off in motion in their lives, and so I need to embrace every moment. So Sundays, typically, I'm pretty tired after Sunday. And you go home, and they call it the preaching hangover, that an hour preaching, which we know I all do, leads to about eight hours of, like, an eight-hour day. So I'm putting in two eight-hour days on a Sunday morning. I'm kind of wiped out, but what other days do I have? Like, I'll sleep when they all go to bed. So we go do something. I, I get maybe one or two naps a year. Maybe. I'm kind of grumpy after nap time, so it's not good for my family either if I take a nap. 
So it's best for me to stay awake. But then we go home. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's go. Let's go ride bikes. Let's go do something. Let's watch a movie together. Let's do something. Because I want to embrace every moment that we have. Because I'm not going to have those forever. That's what Solomon's trying to get us to see. Embrace your day. Rejoice in it. But you will be judged. So make sure it's of God what you're doing. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. He's saying remove all the anxiety that we just talked about even when Karen was sharing before communion. Think of all the anxiety, the vexation, the stress to remove it. Remove that from your life. What are you stressed about? Like if you think about the stuff that stresses you the most, I'd say at least half of it are trivial things. There might be some serious stressors, relationship, interpersonal communication type stuff, like your spouses, your children. There's some serious things that will stress us out. But how often do we get stressed when we're going to be, like, i got to get to Walmart and i got to get home and i got to get this in the oven. Like We stress over that stuff, don't we? I've only got this much time. i got to get here. My kid's homework is not perfect. It's a reflection of me as a parent if my kids aren't perfect. How about the, right? So think about the stuff we stress about. I want my house to be clean and perfect, and when people come over, and then people come over who their kids are out of the house, they come over and see toys, and like, I miss those days. My house isn't perfect. This is my dinky little apartment. I don't really have, I don't really, I don't have a lot of stuff. I don't really, we don't have fine china or these things, and and then someone comes along who's got some years on their life, and they're like, ah, I remember those days. Those were some fun days when we had our dinky little apartment in Indianapolis, and it was just us. Like, too much of the things we stress over are things that other people would appreciate, would cherish, would want. We're too vexed about things that are just silly. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Like, if we stress over even those things, the struggles, the, the pain that comes, they're for a reason. They're for a purpose. God will use all of our pains for his glory if we let him. He's saying don't just be so stressed about it. Don't worry about things so much. You're here for a reason and for a purpose. I think what's missing a lot is that we don't have what's happening here. What we see in Philippians 1. Paul is going to bring this to a whole different light. Paul's in prison. He's writing to a church he loves. It's the only positive letter he wrote from beginning to end. It's a positive letter. It's a letter of encouragement. He's correcting every other church, but this church he loves, and he sees greatness in them and their glory of God. With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Solomon's trying to get us to see is this simple passage that's on coffee cups. We all know it if you've been in church a little bit. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I get that sweet sunrise then Christ has given me a day to live into his name. And if I don't get that sweet sunrise, then I have gain because I get eternity with him. Now this was completely frustrating to the people who had him in prison. This is how Paul lived. You beat him to an inch of his life and he's like, to live is Christ. In my beating, I'll proclaim his name. We're going to kill you. That's just gain. I get to go home to be with the Lord. We're not going to kill you, make you suffer. I will preach. We're going to leave you alone and release you. I'm going to preach anyway. Like he was a completely frustrating guy. Now think if we all had that. And I know if you boil this down to the great commandment and the great commission, right? You have put God first. Anything else between you and God is an idol. So God is first. Love God before anything else and love your neighbor. To live is Christ. I get Christ. I'm going to make much of him. He's going to be first and foremost in everything I do. And then I'm going to love my neighbor in light of that truth. And if I get bad news, if pain comes my way, if he's going to take my life, then I get the gain of Jesus forever. But while I have life, I'm going to live it unto Christ. It could look a hundred different ways. It could be literally opening up the word and sharing the truth with someone. It could be baking some bread and taking it to a friend, serving someone, taking care of someone, being a great employee, a great boss, being a great student, being a good person in our community that's a resource for others to thrive and to receive joy from a relationship with you. Like you have all these things, but it's all about Christ. Everything is for Christ. And I think we've lost that as a church. 
not our church, maybe a little, but as a global church, we've lost this drive. That if I have life, it's to Christ. Instead, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, and I'm going to live for Christ on Sunday, and then through the rest of the week, it's going to be for me. I gave God some time. He got an hour and a half or two, depending upon how long the preacher was winded that day. And then the rest is mine. I did my duty. I put my check in the basket or the sack that goes by. I showed up. I sang some songs. I was polite. I was kind. I got my God time in. But if you're living for Christ, it's every part of your life. It's every part. We've lost being dangerous. Like the church in the world started the hospitals. Didn't it? When the lepers, no one would touch them, the Christians went in. The church went in and rescued them and cared for them. When children were taken to the trash heap in Gehenna, they were rejected by their families. The church went in at night and rescued the babies from the trash heaps. When soldiers, when wars were ravaging, the church walked in and blessed and took care of and cared for men and women who were in pain. The church was the place to stand strong. It was an outpost. It wasn't just a place to feel comfortable. It was a place to be equipped and outfitted for the battle to go out. We've gotten too comfortable. Maybe a little complacent. We don't see the mission in front of us. That there are people dying and going to hell because they've not heard the truth of the gospel. We've lost our mission. We think the world out there is how it's supposed to be, and real world life happens here in the church. So I wanted to show you kind of this video clip. It's from a, a movie called We Were Soldiers. We're going to watch a part of it. There's a speech that the, the main character, Mel Gibson, gives, and I think that's more what we should be doing in the church. Look around you. In the 7th Cavalry, we got a captain from the Ukraine. Another from Puerto Rico. We've got Japanese, Chinese, Blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews and Gentiles, all Americans. Now here in the States, some men in this unit may experience discrimination because of race or creed. But for you and me now, all that is gone. We're moving into the valley of the shadow of death, where you will watch the back of the man next to you as he will watch yours. And you won't care what color he is or by what name he calls God. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was always supposed to be. So let us understand the situation. We are going into battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this, I swear, before you and before Almighty God, that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field, and I will be the last to step off, and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. In the midst of an anxious country where people are split and divided and fighting over all kinds of things, the thing that's missing is a common mission. The cause of Christ. Nothing's going to fix it. 
we can have all the educational philosophies. We can do all the programs. We can do all the education stuff. We can do the sensitivity training. We can have all the debates and have the politicians. And we can have everybody trying to fix it all. Nothing will fix it. Because it's not supposed to be that way. The gospel is the only thing that penetrates through all of that garbage. Think about what we have sitting in this room. We have people of different ethnicities. We have people from different parts of the world and parts of the country. People from all walks of life sitting in this room. If we follow statistics properly, then since I'm 40 years old, we should only have 30-year-olds to 50-year-olds because that's the demographic because the church leaders tell you that the age of the pastor determines the age of the church. By 10 years, plus or minus his or her age, that leads to the makeup of the church. And the demographic is, well, I'm Caucasian, and I'm from southern Indiana, and I'm male, and I can grow some pretty sweet facial hair. So we should only have white dudes in here who like hog farms, right? That's all we should have in here. We should only have education people because I was a teacher. So that should be it. This should be an education-only kind of place. Or my family grew up blue-collar. So those of you that have a little dirt on your fingernails are the only ones that should like me, correct? Like if you follow all that stuff, then we have a very small, minuscule place that we're going to connect. And what transcends all of that is the truth of Jesus. We've lost that as a nation. We've lost that as a church. We've lost that as a people. Or even the church starts splitting and dividing over all of these divisive issues instead of saying, Jesus is the way. And I will proclaim his name and his name alone to the day I die. Because while I'm on this planet, I will proclaim, pro, proclaim Christ. And when I die, I will receive, be received by him in glory in heaven. Until the new heaven and new earth come, I'll rejoice, rejoice, and when the new earth comes and I'm given a new role, then I will work in the new garden, and it will be glorious. But instead, we just split, and we divide, and we fight with each other, and we mess with each other, and we belittle each other, and we ridicule each other, and instead, we should be... That's why I love that clip. The, my whole, the whole point of showing is that one line. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was supposed to be. Men who are clearly scared, going off to Vietnam, the unknown, many of them are going to die and they know it. But home was supposed to be a place where we put all of our individual stuff aside and we have a singular mission, to love our neighbor. How beautiful would it be as a community, as a church, as a country, as a world, if we lived that way? That Christ is all that matters. That you and I might never be best friends. We might have all kinds of idiosyncrasies that you and I might not really be able to like enjoy a lunch together. Because we're both just going, is it time to go yet? Can I just get out of this? I did my Christian duty. But because of Christ, we're brothers and sisters. That even though you might have a different way of raising your kids or the different way of um, leading in your home or what you do, because of Christ, we are together. That's the message that we need to preach. That's the message this world needs, the message this country needs. It doesn't need more division. It needs people coming together in the banner of Christ. He then continues, because he wraps this up. So he gives us, life is precious, life is short, and then he gives us this long run-on sentence. And he gives us the very practical. Now, there were many people of, advanced age in the first service compared to this service. But this should apply to all of us. He starts off by saying, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are dark and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. He's again saying, seize the moment. Live for this day. Live for this day, because darkness is coming. And he gives examples of what this looks like. For the sun and light and moon and the stars are dark and the clouds are turned after the rain, the day when the keepers of the house tremble, your muscles. You get a little shaky. Your muscles kind of rage against you a little bit. Then he says, the strong men are bent. It's your bones. You start to shrink a little bit. My grandmother had some pretty severe osteoporosis, and she seemed to get shorter every year we would like we go visit her. 
to the point where then Eli, I mean, Eli's tall, but even when he was a little shorter, he was as tall as her. You kind of like, when you went to hug her, you like didn't hug too tight because you thought you were going to break her, right? She started to kind of bend and shrink. The bones get weak. The grinders cease because they are few. You've lost all your teeth. Your teeth are gone or they're ground down because you've lived a long life and you've been eating lots of, I guess, gravel. I don't know. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Your eyes fail you. You need some glasses or you get glaucoma. Your eyes don't work as much as they used to. My eyes have always been awful, but the power of contacts makes me not look foolish in my Coke bottle glasses. And the doors of the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and tremors, sorry, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. Again, doors of the street are shut. The older you get, you get a little scared of the people in your neighborhood. Who are these people that just moved in here? They're kind of weird. I'm keeping the door shut. Because you don't feel you're dangerous anymore. You don't know if you can hold your own. Um, I used to always think I could take my dad. Until when I was about 18, I kind of said, you know, Dad, if we got into a fight, I'd, I would smoke you pretty bad. And he goes, you might get a couple hits in, but we were at his shop. And he's like, but there are lead pipes strategically placed all over this place just in case someone, some punk like you comes in here and tries to do something. Oh, man, I never thought my dad thought that way. I was terrified and yet impressed at the same time. One rides up the sound of a bird. Now, this isn't, this isn't universal, but it seems like people, as they get older, they tend to get up way earlier. But I don't know if that's universally true or not. My grandmother, one time, like she went to bed crazy early sometimes, like 6 p.m. She went to bed once at like 6 p.m. She woke up about 8.30. She got up. It was during the winter time. It was still dark. And she didn't realize it was 8.30 p.m. that she'd woken up. She got up, cooked breakfast, called my dad and said, I got breakfast ready if you're going to come in. He's like, Mom, it's... It's 8.30 p.m. Oh, I didn't even know. She kind of lost track of time a little bit. The, you get up early as you get older. All the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid of what is high. So you're, you're kind of scared of heights. You get, so he's trying to point that as you get older, it seems like fear can rise over lots of stuff around you. Fear rises. And he's warning us, don't let this. Like embrace the moment that you have, even today. The almond trees blossom. When the almond trees blossom, they're white. You get white hair or gray hair. But it looks distinguished if it's in your beard. The grasshopper drags drags itself along. You're weak. You don't even have the strength of a grasshopper. And desire fails. I think that's self-explanatory. There was no blue pill back then. Desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. As you get older, all these things diminish. All these things change. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver... Now, if you live long enough in life, you're going to go to the funerals of your friends and your family. And it becomes a sad day when you start seeing like all the people you went to high school with, they're just, they're all dropping like flies. If you live long enough, you're going to see family and friends die. And the mourners will be in the streets. And the older you get, that comes more frequently. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Talking about wells eventually dry up. That all wells eventually dry up. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. That we're all aging. So he gives this really long kind of run on sins, all these examples of aging in our bodies to say that God's all that matters. He's driving us to the truth that the gospel's all that matters. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, Jesus is all that matters. And so the call is do you have an abiding faith in him? Do you trust that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Do you trust that this world was made perfect, it was broken by sin, and it's being put back together in the kingdom of heaven here on earth because of Jesus on the cross? That when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, you're changed, you get a new heart, 
You're no longer terrified or scared or anxious because you know that your eternity is secure, that you cannot lose the salvation that's been granted to you by the king of the universe. That makes us live lives completely different than people outside of the church. Because we know that our eternity is secure. Whatever happens to me, I'm going home. It was probably one of the most relieving days of my life when my daughter um, professed a faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, like I'm, I don't have a death wish. I'm not like Martin Riggs from Lethal Weapon. Anybody? Nobody? It's a pretty cool TV show now, too. But anyway, the I don't have a death wish. I don't. But when my little girl professed a faith in Christ, I felt like, okay, it could happen at any moment. You can come tomorrow, Jesus, if you want. That'd be okay. Because I know that my family is secure. There's a freedom in knowing that you're secure and you can do whatever God calls you to do. There's a book by John Piper. I'm going to skip to it. Called Don't Waste Your Life. He wrote it several years ago, and it's been updated a couple times. Um, and the whole book is just, it's a plea to not live life selfishly for, your, for your, own, your own pleasure. That your life wasn't meant for, for you to just live. Your life was meant as a gift from God to be used for his glory. In the back of the book, he writes this. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Punta Gorda Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? This is a tragedy. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. Most people slip by in life without a passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, and perhaps trying to avoid sin. This book will warn you not to get caught up in a life that counts for nothing. It will challenge you to live and die boasting in the cross of Christ and making the glory of God your singular passion. If you believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain, read this book. Learn to live for Christ and don't waste your life. And he's not saying that you can't have a boat and you can't collect seashells. But if that's your singular goal, then you're wasting it. Like I think the rocking chairs at Cracker Barrel are quite comfortable. But if I retire from life and I just sit on my porch and I just rock back and forth all day, that's a waste. If I really believe that my life is Christ, then even in my retirement, I'm going to live for him. Whatever that looks like. But if I'm going to live for him now, then whatever life he gives me, I'm going to live for his glory. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, what you see happen in a culture that doesn't believe that is you see a culture of death, which is what we're seeing in the Western culture. We're in a place of complete and total personal autonomy. Whatever feels good, I'll do it. When I'm ready to end my life, I should just be able to end it. Correct? It's on the ballot in Colorado this fall, but we're seeing it sweep across Europe over the last several years the detrimental idea that life is pointless. People just end their lives. It started off as very good legislation. Like, terminally ill, two months to live, I'm going to end my life. Most of us would go, you know, that makes sense. I don't want to be in pain, but I don't know if you've been around hospitals very much, around hospice. Hospitals do that already now. They don't just end your life, but they make sure there's no pain. I've been in multiple hospital rooms, multiple scenarios, where the most gracious nurses and doctors make sure that your loved ones are never in any pain as they're living their last moments on this earth. So the idea of, I just don't want to be in pain, is already a reality in the medical profession. That's the whole purpose of a hospice center. It's the whole purpose for that building they're building in this community. It's for people to have a pain-free, 
time as they transition from this life to eternity. But what has gone, been wrought disastrous in the world is just saying, I just, I think it's time for me to go. We're seeing it happen in the Netherlands where the Dutch are going to start allowing assisted suicide for people who just feel like life is over. No age requirement. There's a guy who was on, I forget the doctor's name, in Sweden, he was part of the death board, which was a panel of five doctors who helped determine whether people should be granted the right for assisted suicide. And he had to remove himself ethically from the board because there were more and more cases of people coming asking for doctor-assisted suicide because of depression. And he's like, these are all treatable cases. Like, we can help, and with clinical, we can help these people. And instead, they just want to, and they're granting them their wish. So what started off as, I think we could all agree, terminally ill people who, who are in pain and suffering, we can, get, we can get behind that, I think, a little bit. But it's gone to this. Where now you have people just saying, I, I, I just don't feel good. And when you start seeing the diminishing quality of life like that, where you start seeing whole societies diminishing a respect for life, what are we left with? It's just a culture of death. And Solomon is saying, embrace your life. Embrace what God's given you. Embrace each sunrise. Yeah, you're going to get old, but it's fine. We all get old. Do you have Christ as king? Then everything's going to be fine. Everything will be made fine. But until that day, you have a mission to share Christ. And there's so many people in this world that are hopeless. They feel there's no answers. And we have the answers right here. If we would just have the boldness to share it. So a couple things to leave you with. Our lives find meaning in the gospel alone. You ever wonder why, like, that job you have feels like it's a drag. Not my job, I mean, it's perfect. Where you get kind of worn down and you get kind of, because that's not where your meaning, the meaning of your life is supposed to come from. It's supposed to come from Jesus. You work, you're given the blessing of a job and financial means so you can provide for your family, but that's not the point of your life. The point of your life is to make much of him to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the point of your life. And if you know that, then any job becomes tolerable, at least. My years in retail were not like the most fun, but I still found a lot of joy in them, especially when I was selling knives. Like, that was fun, right? But the Christmas Eve at the mall in Indianapolis was not fun. I wanted to be with my family. But there was great joys in other days there. Working at Tractor Supply Company in high school, I loved that job. I got to hang out with people. I got to work. I got to just, right? I loved being around people. I got to do some really cool things. Now, was my life's calling to be an expert in plowshares? It really wasn't. But man, I loved that job. Teaching high school, I loved it. God called me out of teaching high school. But I loved that job. I loved my students. There were days I wanted to strangle necks, but I loved that job. But if I got bogged down in it, when you have those, do you have that one class of students that you just can't wait for their year to be over? Like you have those few people, you're ready for them to either like move on, graduate, just get out of my room. If my whole purpose in life was to be that teacher, then I would be frustrated all the time. But if my purpose is Christ, then this becomes an avenue to share that truth. And I can take the frustration because I know I'm not there just to be the best teacher in the world. I'm there to be an, an ambassador of Christ. So then what legacy are you leaving? And I don't mean like your name on a plaque. I don't mean that. Like the people, we see all the names at the university across here, and within a few years they'll just be reduced to the little plaque that gives us a little bio. Oh, I didn't know that. How interesting. You go to the Ivinson Mansion. You take the tour. You're like, man, this thing is, 
this is pretty cool in here. And then you find out after you listen to the tour people, ah, no, this was all like wiped out and it was a girl's home and some hobos. They said hobos. I don't know if that's even a thing, but they said that. Like they tore the whole place apart and burnt it in the fireplace. What? This is a recreation? Yeah. So even something, I mean, the Ivinson names everywhere. And the mansion was turned into dust until it was reclamated and refurbished. Like your name, that's not what I'm getting at. Like what legacy you're leaving behind in helping others know the joy of Christ. Your family. Like what kind of dad or husband or mom or wife or student or teacher. Like what, what kind of professional are you? That when you leave, people are going to go, they had an impact on my life. Because I promise you, when you leave your position in your job, they replace you pretty fast. We all have some great self-importance. Well, if they get rid of me, they will miss me severely. And then you find out three weeks later they hired someone and everything's fine. You talk to a few people, but it's really, it's done. Like I have this in my head when we left West Virginia. I had this in my head. They're going to be sorry we left, right? It's been four years. Nobody's been calling for me to come back. Right? And it would never work if I went back. We think that about ourselves. We will be replaced. But there's some friends that I have back there that I know that I had an impact on, that our friendships are never going to end. And I know that I left a legacy in some of the men's lives there that it's going to continue on in their families. And it's, I, know that I've, I know I've had a role. I don't know if it was always a good role, but I know I had a role. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? Not just your children, but the people around you. That matters way more than anything else. Do you live that way? Do you live a way that oozes the truth? And you live your life knowing that it matters. That your life matters to the kingdom. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. None of you were accidents or mistakes. God ordained your existence and he's put you on a mission and put you on a plan that's going to make much of him to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would see that we're part of a mission field here in Laramie and around the world. That we weren't just brought into existence to work and make money and then die. We're here for a reason. And that reason is to know and to love and to trust you and to love our neighbors in a way that's going to help them see the truth of who you are. If this world was just the 80 years we have, the 90 years we have, and then we just go into the ground, then we should live the most crazy, partying, hedonistic lives. But none of us do that. Because we're image bearers of you, Lord. We know that that's not right. It's born in us. That even though we're broken, we're called to wholeness in you. So I pray, Lord, that we would see that in ourselves and that would be, give us a confidence that would help us to go into the world proclaiming your name. That could be as simple as helping a neighbor mend a fence and it could be as complicated as walking with a neighbor for a long season of despair. Help us to be ready for both. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Me close to you, never let me go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. else will do Cause nothing else could take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace 
me find a way. Bring me back to you. Thank you again for the truth of your word. And I pray that we would embrace each and every day as an opportunity, an opportunity to enjoy all that you have created around us, but also to enjoy the grace and mercy you poured upon us. Help us to be motivated by that, Lord, to share that same grace and mercy.